Welcome to the Local to Global podcast. I'm Nick here. I guess I was in business for something like 40 years, ending up as a, an advisor to Lord Sugar on The Apprentice. Now, in this series, we're looking at why exporting is great for business. Whether you're starting a brand new company or looking to expand, selling overseas can make a huge impact in terms of increasing sales growth and stability. But for many, the idea of selling abroad is daunting, truly daunting. In this podcast, I've been talking to some of the UK's standout business founders and exporters to hear about their stories, to ruminate on the successes, failures, tips and strategies for trading internationally. In this episode, I'm joined by a brilliant tech company, which is converting people's footsteps into off-grid energy and data in streets across the world. The company is called PaveGen, and I'm here with Alex Johnson, Head of Communications and one of the founder investors. Now, Alex, explain what PaveGen is all about. So PaveGen is an innovative, um, very beautiful-looking flooring technology that converts the kinetic energy of your footsteps into off-grid energy and data. So essentially, you walk across a, a PaveGen-enabled walkway, it, it may be it into a shopping centre or, or as an airport or in a kind of smart street in a city, and as you walk across it, the surface depresses slightly by between 5 and 10 mil, depending on how, how much pressure you apply to it. And that downward force creates a rotation in the electromagnetic generators below. And that produces around three joules of energy. So you convert your kinetic energy into around three joules of off-grid electricity. And then also data, as I mentioned. Um, another way of looking at it is um, a single person, as they're walking across a pave gen, can produce around seven watts of continuous power um, as they're walking across. So it's enough energy to power low-power local applications and can be stored in batteries. So typically we'll be powering LED lighting. We might be um, powering a, a battery which can be used to charge phones later. Or in Washington, where the energy is being stored in a battery during the daytime and is then being deployed at nighttime to power the architectural lighting of a new park just in DuPont Circle. So energy, data, and yet in a strange way, the floor sinks a little bit. Is that disturbing for the pedestrian? That's an interesting point. It's actually, what I, my, my own experience, I was an investor, and I, I came back into the company once this new version of our technology had been developed. Um, so the old technology was a paving stone shape, and it had a kind of central raised platform, which you stood on, and it depressed a little bit. This new system is a series of interlocking triangles, and the reason it's triangles is, is to capture more of the energy. So wherever you stand on it, it moves downwards, creating the drive in the, in the generators, but also prevents it from being a trip hazard. So it's, it's a kind of smooth, a slight undulation as you walk across it. And my experience of doing installations is, so we were at Bird Street, just off Oxford Street, for eight months last year in a project with Transport for London and US Den Company, the retail association. And we would get people, we'd be doing a lot of interviews, and we'd get people, the same people coming back, joggers, runners and walkers, who just came back just to try it, to, to feel it, you know, because it's a really quite a nice feeling. And does it, is it, uh, does it expend more of the pedestrian's energy? A little bit. I mean, it's something like 16% more energy you would use. It's not that noticeable. I mean, one really kind of good application of our technology is to enhance health and well-being. So rather than taking a, a taxi or a train um, through your city, you could take a page and enabled pathway through the city. So we get used a lot in that context to show that people care about 
their pedestrians, their sort of healthy communities, and they can reward their communities. It's interesting, actually, because the pedestrian is engaging in a number of key issues in today's world. Mm -hmm. First of all, they're contributing to that power source, Mm -hmm. power storage. They're living more healthily because, you know, it takes just that little bit more energy. So one could argue that it's sort of not exactly going for a bike ride, but it's, you know, it's making them slightly fitter. And the data, give me some reasons why the data is so important. So the data is two types of data. There's GDPR compliant data, so the data that doesn't kind of conflict with any rules or regulations, and that data is really about when and where PaveGen is being used. So if I know, if I've got a PaveGen-enabled walkway in my location, I can see when that power is being generated, so I know that it's being occupied at that point. So that's one type of data. The second type of data, it's permission-based customer analytics, and that's basically... I can be rewarded. So uh, we have an app that was developed by the guy who behind iTunes, um, Jeff Martin. And our walkways, I mentioned they were connected by, a, we have low-power Bluetooth beacons, which is a very fancy way of saying, like, sensors that can interact with smartphones. And so as I walk across the page end, the signal is transmitted from the walkway to my smartphone. As I'm on the walkway, it's telling me how many steps I've taken, how much energy I've generated. And then it asks me, do I want to exchange that energy for rewards. Do I want to pass it on? Do I want to kind of get donated to charity? Do I want to spend it, say, on a discount in a shop? Or do I want to kind of save it and and maybe use it to contribute to my son's education? And it's how you use those rewards can determine attitudes to certain issues. I can see you paving a huge shopping mall in Dubai or wherever Mm. it is, and I'm actually earning points that can be retrieved or recovered or paid out in any of the stores which is also presumably there's an app there somewhere which will guide me to which stores are offering the best deals on that payback. Is that true? Absolutely. So we're very much about nudging people around different environments. We call it a fair exchange of values. So, you know, I I walk across the PaveGen array. Let's say I take the PaveGen route rather than going on a travelator in an airport. And I've just saved some energy because I haven't used a travelator. I've walked across the PaveGen And I've just earned myself, you know, 30 points. I've generated something like 200 joules of energy. And there and then I can make that decision. Do I save that energy and save it as a reward, which I can spend later? Or do I go and take it straight to the executive lounge where I'll get free access to a gym for half an hour while I wait for my flight? And likewise, in a shopping centre, it could be saying, you know, the shopping centre owner, um, retailers are having a hard time at the moment, as we know. Shopping centres are under a lot of pressure. And they want to encourage people to be more loyal, for example, to a particular store within the shopping centre. So that shopping centre might offer up the PaveGen walkway as a way of promoting a particular shop to the retailers within that store. So it's sort of nudging people to, you know, kind of go to different places where they wouldn't necessarily have already thought. It's an amazing innovation. Could it be the future for smart cities, do you think? We believe it is. We believe we're the sort of interactive part of the smart city. So smart cities to date have all been about sensors, AI, you know, robotics, you know, all these things that are quite unnatural and quite alien to a lot of people. And what PaveGen does, it gives you a physical, tangible, quite easy to understand in principle way of interacting with that smart city. So to give you an example, Siemens, uh, we signed an MOU with them at the beginning of this year. And that basically was a kind of commitment on both our sides to work together on smart city projects. And the reason that Siemens were interested in working with us is because we, they, they describe us as the sizzle in their smart city offering. Mm-hmm. So we're the, something that actually people can relate to. So I can participate rather than... Well, we all become contributors. 
Yes. That's the way. We, we contribute to the overall good of our cities rather than just gazing up at solar panels on the roof of a distant skyscraper sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Each step we take is actually contributing something. It's interesting. However, there's got to be some drawback somewhere along. Maybe it's cost. Uh, well, you know, to be honest... Um, per square metre, say, I mean, compared yeah. with concrete. Well, the technology is expensive at the moment. It's currently expensive. I mean, like solar was in the, in the beginning of, of solar. Solar was also very expensive when it first was developed. But, you know, the, the reason that people want it is, as I said, it's something that people can participate in. So rather than being like, as you said, you know, on rooftops or in the fields or in, in the ocean, this is technology that your customers or your community can literally interact with. And that, that has a real value that's above and beyond just the pure energy output. Let's go back to the beginning of all this. How easy was it? How easy was this journey? Well, Lawrence Campbell Cook, the founder, um, he's 32. He is a very determined person. I'd say that you'd need to be that determined to get something like this off the ground. I think he went round to lots of investors, lots of VCs, people that you know he was pitching to, and found it very hard actually to get traction in the beginning. So he took the bull by the horns. He was he was actually he just finished a, a placement with Eon, the energy company. And he'd been trying to develop street furniture using renewables like um, solar and wind and to power lighting and so on. He just couldn't get it to work. There wasn't enough wind in canyons of cities and the solar was too difficult to kind of come to market, if you like, in that small context. Anyway, so he left there and and he was commuting every day through um, Victoria Station. And he just saw the volume of people. I think it's something like 180,000 a day. He thought, well, maybe we could just use some of that ambient energy. So he, he went around, had all these meetings and didn't have much success um, in terms of like raising money in the beginning. But then he identified a couple of two or three people who could actually support his vision and got it. And he then basically built a prototype. And, you know, he'll tell you himself, he broke into a building site, installed it, photographed it and put it on social media. And through that, that simple act, um, was able to generate enough interest. People, you know, his phone was off the hook. People wanted to be part of it because everyone, it's a, it's a kind of, we always say it's a really simple idea to, to kind of imagine. It was quite a complicated thing to bring to market. No, but you can immediately see how it would work. Yes. You know? Yes, exactly. It's extraordinary, actually. But hold on. Today, not so many years after it all started, mm. your products can be found in over 30 countries. So exporting is... It's great. It's imperative for your business, really. How difficult was it to get uh, get started on that? Yeah, so we've been very fortunate. Because the idea is quite an easy one to kind of, kind of communicate in some ways, mm. the, the basic principle, the energy transfer, and because of Lawrence's sort of passion and commitment to his cause, we've managed to secure some really good like partnerships and had the support of people like the Department for International Trade, for example. Um, so Lawrence has been on a few trade missions. He was on a trade mission in 2013 with DIT, um, with David Cameron, and also another one in Milan in 2015. He was at the Milan Expo. And that giving having that exposure has really, really helped. We've also worked with some of the world's biggest organizations, so companies like Shell. Uh, we did a project where we put paved in underneath the astroturf of a community football pitch in a very poor favela. And so that was a really good example, actually, because, you know, they gave us the support and the sort of the opportunity to try something new. So we put paved in underneath a AstroTurf pitch in this Moro de Manera favela. And the paved in, in combination with solar, um, new solar technology there, was basically powering the floodlights. So 
before there was this just dark place. Kids were getting into trouble, you know, getting into violence and drugs and all the rest of it. Now they could play football at night. But the really special thing about that project was not necessarily even the, the floodlights and the football. It was the impact that seeing PaveGen and the engineers on site had for that local community. Mm. So kids suddenly saw, oh, maybe I could be a scientist. Maybe I could be an engineer. Maybe, maybe there's another way out of the favela other than football and, and, and drugs and so on. So... And things like that. So we also did a fantastic project in Paris. Um, We did the 2012 Schneider uh, Electric Paris Marathon. We had Stephen Hawking's team from his documentary Strand, Jim Al-Khalili, following us around Paris as we laid a pavegen walkway across the finish line on the Champs-Élysées. And again, it was about the crowd and the runners competing to generate the most amount of energy. So it's things like that. And then also, um, we're amazingly fortunate that we have a really constant kind of stream of very interesting projects. We've just just done um, Abu Dhabi Air, International Airport. So we've just launched there. So we're, we're a walkway connecting two terminals, Terminals 1 and 3 at Abu Dhabi International Airport, which is, which is great. So kids you know, or people can walk through, participate, as you mentioned, generate some energy. There's a game as well, so keep an airplane kind of airborne. And it's just something that's you know, really sort of uh, powerful because it's physical. Tell me this, your founder, this young... 32-year-old man, Lawrence Campbell Cook, came out of university, was a design engineer, I think, wasn't he? Design and technology engineer, yeah. Yeah, and suddenly you're exporting to 30 countries. Now, are you telling me that he had that ability not only to dream up this idea, but also to deal with the technology of it and all the business aspects of it? You know, exporting to 30 countries doesn't come easy. So... Was it a question of recruiting people, leaning heavily on the Department uh, of International Trade? Well, how is it possible? So I think you're, you're right. It's a, it's a combination of support and finding the right partners, be they the Department for International Trade, who are, have you know places on the ground, experts, local experts and offices and premises and shows, trade shows and so on, where you get to meet people. And then there's also recruiting the team. So we did a crowdfunding raise in 2015 through Crowdcube and um, raised £2 million. And that gave Lawrence the ability to hire, make some senior hires. So we have a chief technology officer, Craig Webster, formerly a director of Cambridge Consultants. He was the founder of Avalent Technologies, which is like radar, um, protecting wind farms using radar, three-dimensional radar. Um, we've got a head of sales, David Light, um, you know, very senior guy. He's been working on big projects for a long time myself and, and others and, and a board. So we have Jeff Martin, the guy who invented iTunes on our board. Uh, we've got Charlotte Mason, um, who uh, looks after the kind of the community um, around sort of business schools. Um, so we have some really, you know, good senior people. And, you know, Lawrence's energy has thrust him forwards. And then he's kind of backed that, secured that, if you like, with the kind of senior people around him. I mean, he's getting a, a big name now as a sort of a future thinker, hmm. a big future thinker. But it's a truly global opportunity you've got here. How are you actually approaching that? Are you, have you got sales forces out there? You've got uh, distributors, agents. How does it work? Or is it all down to the boss getting on a plane? So we have a very small sales team currently. We've got two people in our sales team. And you know most of the incoming business has been either generated by the press. We deliver significant press around the world. And also by Lawrence participating at events such as TEDx events. Um, he spoke recently at the RSA. He opened Jitex, which is a big tech fair over in the Middle East. And our plan now is to grow the team, the sales and marketing teams, you know, significantly so we can capitalize on all these opportunities. To be honest with you, a lot of our time is spent dealing, filtering out the serious you know, inquiries from people who just love the idea and want to, want to find out a bit more. 
So we have a kind of big job of building out our sales and marketing team so we can be more proactively reaching out to those people we want to target rather than filtering through all the, you know, the hundreds of inquiries we get every week. Sure. What about manufacturing? Where is all that taking place? So we're currently manufacturing in the UK. We're looking to reduce the cost of the manufacturing process significantly, and we will be looking at other opportunities. I mean, we like the fact that we're in the UK because it gives us control. We feel like we're contributing to the local economy and so on in, in a, a way beyond just tax revenues, helping factories to hire people. But, you know, we're also pragmatic and realistic and so we have to go where we can get the product the best product made at the, at the right price as a british invention and a british manufactured product at the moment how important is that to overseas customers does britain count i think britain does count actually someone i was in a marketing event recently and it was quite striking for me because this wasn't coming from someone who worked for dit or the uk government and it was a marketing person saying how valuable he thought the British brand was. So the Exporting is Great campaign, which we've, we've been lucky enough to be part of, mm. has actually really delivered you know, numbers, value for people, for businesses. And I, you know, I personally feel, just as a, as a punter in my 40s, as someone who's worked in business for the last 20 years, you know, I feel that now there's actually, we've never had a better voice in some ways. I think you know, Brexit's obviously been, uh, is causing us a lot of problem, a lot of heartache. But I think the, the essential values of Britain are celebrated, continue to be celebrated, um, especially given everything that's happening, you know, uh, in the US and so on. So I think, yeah, it has been valuable. And I believe that it is a, a positive uh, asset to our brand to be British. OK, good. Let me just ask you a couple of other questions here. First of all, varying regulations overseas. Does that cause you problems? And secondly, maintenance, because you've got moving parts here. Tell us about the, the regulations you've had to confront and also the maintenance issues. To be honest with you, a lot of our trade is outside of the EU. So we're coming up against different tariffs, different duties, different processes, procedures. And they are just, you know, kind of barriers you just have to kind of get over and just deal with. Um, but make sure you build enough time to get deals done, mm. to be able to deliver to a certain deadline. We've also designed our systems, the kind of physical manufacture of them, to be modular, so they're much easier to assemble. So we were out recently in um, in Sharjah in the Middle East, and um, you know we had to deploy it at a site which hadn't really been finished, but because we had a modular system, we were able to kind of when they decided suddenly that we needed to move it to a different location, we were able to do that, you know, simply. Um, so that's kind of a technical, physical thing. Um, so as we go, we'll, we'll learn better, you know, more and more techniques in terms of how we move things around. But we have an in-house logistics team who are very good at getting consignments through customs and so on. You know, I'm not saying it's never problematic, but we're good at getting stuff done into the ground. Looking to the future then, Alex, what are your next steps in terms of international growth? Funny enough, Lawrence um, couldn't be here today because he's on a plane travelling to India with uh, the DIT, Department of International Trade, we're exhibiting at the Future Tech Fest, and we're very much talking to Indian investors and Indian companies about doing projects. Um, so we've just, in fact, deployed at Intel's R&D center in Bengaluru, formerly Bangalore. So we are literally at the entranceway to Intel's new R&D campus. So everyone who passes into their R&D center goes across the page end. You know, and it's, it's basically helping Intel communicate their innovation proposition to employees and staff and customers and so on. So Lawrence is on his way. He's up there somewhere heading towards um, India on a party organised by the DIT. Are they good at kicking the door open for guys like you? 
It's certainly helped us immensely to have government support and the department support. So just from having able to kind of assemble um, decision makers in a space, you know, getting the right people. You know, many of these organizations that we work with have thousands of employees and you need to be talking to the right person, you know, the head of procurement or the head of marketing or whoever it is or the technology lead. And they're able to convene those people, those big names. Um, and in countries where the cultures are very different, so we do a lot of work in the Middle East, and you know we don't have that experience, that innate native experience about how to deal with Middle Eastern customers. And obviously, we're, we're learning that. But a way, you know, a way of us actually having an interface with these people in these countries is through the government support. So it's really hard for it would be hard for us to do that without that support and it's definitely you know we can look back at projects we've done I mean the Intel project and it's those kinds of opportunities would not have happened without some support from DIT so looking back if there's one thing you you wish you'd known about exporting before you started what do you reckon it would be um, so I think as a company we probably would have wanted to have more quickly potentially well I suppose we want you'd want to understand precisely how processes work in different countries so you'd want that advanced knowledge so you know we've learned along the way and our knowledge has grown and we've you know we now have a really good team around us that can support installations and projects in multiple locations and in the early days there were there were probably problems issues with not knowing what the right form was, what the right process was. So. This is where the DIT comes in, of course, isn't it? Because exactly. it's all very well coming up with some brilliant mousetrap, all right? But you've got to actually uh, have somebody to mentor you, guide you through until you've acquired that knowledge. Strikes me you're pretty much well on the way to that. No, exactly. Well, that's all for this episode, and it's thanks to Alex Johnson, Head of Communications at PaveGen. And that's it for this series of the Local to Global podcast. To find out more about starting your own exporting journey, visit great.gov.uk, where you'll find more stories, tips and information. But from me, Nick Hewer, it's goodbye. Goodbye.